<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. Because it's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie, too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win Best Picture. Oh, Pick God, Pick. I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our week in entertainment, focus in on a particular performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Miss Sinclair. I'm Edison, and so this week Helen is away, and back for a good time, not for a long time, is Risha. <laughs> <laughs> you might remember Risha from his previous guest spots on TMTM, reviewing Judy, The Wife, and most recently, The Woman King. Welcome back, Risha. Hi. Yes, always a pleasure. It's always lovely. I always have a great time. My only sadness is that I never actually get to do this with Helen. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> well, she's she's actually in Dusseldorf. Yeah. I can't tell if I should feel worse for her or <laughs> jealous. Uh, well, we'll find out when she gets back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Risha, take it away. Set over a decade from the start of the first film, the sequel to Avatar, The Way of the Water, recounts the travails and trials of the Sully family as they continue their fight to protect the planet, the indigenous Navi, and their children, specifically, from extraterrestrial colonizing humans who are inexplicably mostly white cis straight men, despite this being set in 2170. Back to Fight It Out is the main villain from the original film, Miles Korich, but this time as a lab-grown Navi. Featuring an ensemble cast of heavyweights, director James Cameron brings back Zoe Saldana and Sam Worthington as Neytiri and Jake Scully, with supporting roles played by Scony Weaver, Kate Winslet, Stephen Lang, Cliff Curtis, Edie Falco, and many others. With a $350 million budget, Avatar has already made $955 million worldwide and looks pretty much guaranteed to make a whole lot more with a three hour runtime widespread popularity and a lot of condemnation from indigenous communities everywhere we're here to try and follow the way of the water (laughs) (laughs) edison miss sinclair what were your first impressions well you know a little backstory to my relationship with avatar is that I was in New York City with a friend and she really wanted to see it and we arrived late and had to sit in the front row. Oh my God. And it has to be one of my worst movie going experiences ever. I felt so sick and I swore I would never be that close to a movie screen again. And to be honest, I didn't love the first Avatar, so having this movie attached to that experience as well didn't make me the most excited to see this second film. Mm -hmm. So I definitely went into this with a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. And I also felt like going into this, it felt like a, a bit of a chore, And that's generally not how I feel when I go into movies uh, at all. But I chose wisely and I sat in the very back. (laughs) I did not buy a 3D ticket. I saw a regular ass screening. Mm. And part of me was like, maybe it does need the bells and whistles. Maybe this is meant to be seen in 3D. 
because I found when it started visually, it was a bit underwhelming. Hmm. So I had a very <laughs> different experience with the first Avatar. You know, it came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. I was living in Vancouver at the time. I definitely saw it six times in cinema. Um, <laughs> Opposite Six times. Yeah. Wow, I was okay. obsessed, not necessarily with the story. Even then, the story was like lame. I won't pretend like that I understood how sort of exploitative it was at that time because I actually really did not but Mm -hmm. I was so bowled over and blown away by the visuals of that film and the experience of seeing it in 3D that I just could not stop going to the theater much like everybody else as it Mm -hmm. did become the highest grossing film of all time yeah so for this one I was coming home with my family and there's a movie theater here but it's just a regular screen and I was like well no I can't have my first time seeing this film just be on a regular screen mm. so my little brother Sean drove up to Halifax and where there is an IMAX but there's also this other thing called Screen X Ooh. and screen I was X? yeah and so it's basically like a re- your regular screen but it, the picture continues up on either side of the walls of the cinema Ooh. so it's like a 270 degree cinematic experience right and i thought this is perfect it was not perfect (laughs) it was actually an absolute distracting disaster and i will never go to a screen x film again it sounds like my nightmare (laughs) mine too (laughs) in fact i nearly my first impression was about 10 minutes into this film turning to my brother sean and saying "Uh, i may leave we may have to leave right Right. now and see this another day but i stuck with it and eventually you get used to it or whatever and that's fine, but my first impression was disappointment. How about how about you, Risha? Okay, so my background: I watched the first Avatar film on a plane. Uh, <laughs> I'd say I'd say mostly comatose and definitely drunk. Wow! And I really didn't take in anything other than wow, pretty, wow, bad plot, wow, great. <laughs> So for this one, I was like, no, 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 no. I've got to go all out. I'm going to do the full IMAX 3D experience. And I forgot that, I don't know if it's because I have ADHD or because I'm just a sensitive Englishman, but I forgot (laughs) that for me, IMAX 3D makes me feel like I'm raw dogging life. Like it's as though I don't have my antidepressants (laughs) or my ADHD meds and I'm just like scraping my raw nerves across every single bit of uh, (laughs) stimulus. So I, I spend a lot of the film just like, you know, like every single jump, I'm fully jumping out of my chair to the point oh that God, the woman next to that. me shrank away and clung onto her husband and looked at me because she thought that maybe I was, you know, having a moment of some kind. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so my first impression was, wow, this is really pretty. And then I was like, oh, what's that? Creeping over the horizon. Oh, oh that's right. It's, it's three hours of nonstop racism. <laughs> and that was uh, that was my first impression. Okay, yes. well, why don't we get right into the storytelling? Before we get into the themes and the controversy and the conversations, let's talk about what this film is. Like, what is the story of this film, okay? Mm-hmm. So Jake Sully is the chief of the Omatakaya clan. They're there on Pandora with his wife, Natiri. Now, the, now they've got a whole family, three biological kids, two adopted kids. And again, humans are coming to basically take over at this point because Earth is dying and they need the land. So there's an element of this that is also a revenge plot. They're coming specifically for the Sullies. And so Jake believes that if they leave their area of Pandora to go to this other region, the the reef region called Metkaina, they 
can find safety, basically. They can just hide out and be safe from being killed and protect their people. Yeah, and that really never works, does it? Yeah. It just never <laughs> works. No. It's always the bad guys find you and then they affect other people as well. Yeah, I, exactly. that, that was my first moment of like, I'm sorry, this experienced military leader... His entire plan is let's run away and then also let's later send a helicopter that's very tra- trackable to come here so that it's right. really easy for them to find us. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. what? You know, I think that the story of Avatar has never been the strong element. The story has always been criticized. Hmm. Obviously, there were the comparisons to Pocahontas and Fern Gully. And mm-hmm. I think that Avatar the story really isn't beloved enough to justify telling this in five movies on his imdb he has up to five uh, Mm -hmm. avatar movies Mm -hmm. coming up and i think the problem is is that it didn't really work in 2009 story-wise of course but it definitely doesn't work story-wise in 2022 and i didn't feel like there was enough adjustments to the criticism from the first one applied or thought through with with this second one. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like the same story being told again, you know, warts and all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really just because you've got the same screenwriter, same director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the only way for this franchise to modernize and to actually address some of the major issues of you know, the exploitation of indigenous culture, of the blue face, is for them to have different writers, for them to have different Mm -hmm. directors, for them to bring indigenous actors, indigenous filmmakers into the mix. And that hasn't happened at all, so... Right. Well, and it's hard, too, because if you are shooting a movie over the course of a decade... Maybe you are waiting for the technology to catch up to what you want to do, but the problem is the culture shifts. Yeah, exactly. So much changes in a decade. Yeah. And if you're shooting stuff six years ago, that stuff's already shot. The money's already been spent. That's you right. know, it's not like you can keep going back and changing everything based on the culture shift that happens like every year we're progressing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I feel like having this movie being shot over such a long period of time actually does it a disservice in a lot of ways in terms of story. And and like I said, it barely worked story-wise in 2009. <laughs> I know. No, you're, you're absolutely right because this is – the budget is so, so robust. Mm-hmm. They started filming in 2017 and shot over three and a half full years of just filming itself. But that's that's once you're into actual production – let alone like the scripts and the pre-development of the casting and all of that that came way in the years in advance of that. So it makes it really difficult to pivot and adapt or respond Mm -hmm. to. I think it's a totally fair criticism that there should have been lessons learned from the critiques of the first film and that indigenous voices should have been incorporated into a film that is largely telling their story or an amalgamation of, of characters that are inspired by indigenous stories mm-hmm. and that's not there right so it, it is appropriation that is what it is you know i think that motivation is key here when it comes to this movie what is james cameron's motivation here and i know that mm-hmm. sounds corny being like what is your motivation but i think it's important 
to understand why he is continuously telling this story. And a lot of that, I feel, is ego-driven mm-hmm. and less about the social conversation and societal examination than it is about the technical element. It's interesting because I felt this way when I watched West Side Story, this, the new Steven Spielberg Mm-hmm. And it definitely felt like the director wanted to do this film because of the technical elements of it and the challenge of these technical elements and less about changing how Puerto Ricans are portrayed <laughs> in film. And I think that there is something that feels a bit inherently wrong about watching a movie where it's James Cameron telling this story, where mm-hmm. in 2009... James, the James Camerons of the world were telling these stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. But now we don't necessarily want to see these types of directors telling these stories. And there is something I think that's inherently silly about Avatar that takes away from the importance of the subject matter. That's why I always say it's a technical film first and the societal issues are second. The story is second. But that does pose a problem now. And it was a problem then, but it is even more apparent now. I think that for Cameron, though, I would say it's not just about achieving technical brilliance. I think he also sees himself as like the teller of an epic. Yeah. And I mean that in like the classical sense. Like, I I think he really does think he's like this century's Homer. You know, Mm -hmm. this is like, I I wrote in my notes, I think this is the silly ad. It's just a silly ad. Stop it. There is something inherently silly about Avatar that you Mm -hmm. can't get past and I can't Mm -hmm. necessarily take seriously. And, you know, looking at James Cameron's filmography, this is all he has for the next decade of his life. Is he going to die and all he's going to produce from this point on is Avatar movies? I thought... What a waste of one of the most important directors of all time. I would say it's not even just a waste. It's like the weaponization of his talents to create incredibly (laughs) racist films that make indigenous people look awful in so many ways is... I'm going to challenge that. I am going to challenge that. Yeah. In this film, I'm 100% behind it being cultural appropriation. It is that. It is definitively that. I don't think that it's making indigenous people look bad in any capacity. They're the heroes of this film, the lead of this film. They're the ones you're supporting through the entire thing at every single moment. The only time, if you're going to cheer at anything in this film, it's when the colonizers are destroyed. It's when Pyakon, the giant whale thing, crashes on the ship. It's those moments. But the film only allows those things to happen when they're being led by a white savior, basically. Like, it's, these things only happen because Scully is there. He's really he's really portrayed as being the key military leader that allows this to happen. And without him, indigenous people would have been, like, unable to do this. That's what this film implies. And it's very clear. They call him a very important military leader. They talk about how good his raids are. He really is responsible for leading all of the combat scenes that happen. And so yeah, but ultimately I get really he's not responsible this. for saving the things at the end. The kids are. That's an extension of his family unit, right? It's the patriarchal family unit. Sure, but he and all of them would be dead if it weren't for the Metcainia people, the Reef people coming to save them as well. Yeah, they I agree. Toast. It's not it's not totally black and white, but like this is one hundred percent a white savior narrative. 
Like, that's what this and is. I saw the first film a thousand percent as that. I don't think this one is in the same way. I, I agree it's more nuanced than the first film, but ultimately we're still seeing, even when there's, like, a quote-unquote indigenous Pandoran body on the screen, it's still oftentimes a character that used to be a white colonizing straight cis man from earth Mm. and that part really just drives me bananas it's really only two characters that get any screen time that are that Mm -hmm. that's it but they get a huge amount of screen time i would say that jake is easily relegated to being like a secondary character at best in this this is not his story at all i mean he's got no person he's not a character really anyways more than just like an outline of a character but i don't think that this is his story it's about his kids specifically like the middle kid if there was going to be a main character i think i i think what i saw in the storyline here for Sigourney Wu's character Kiri, I agree she is portrayed as being key and she obviously has these abilities that are important but it's also very clear that they're setting her up to be the main character of the next film Mm. like you never actually understand like what the origins are of her powers this film is still very much about the confrontation between Sully and Quaritch that's very much Mm -hmm. the main confrontation that's the climax of the film is them fighting to the death I think it's these issues being examined with these very generic broad brushstrokes yes mm-hmm. there is something that just doesn't feel authentic to indigenous cultures where or any cultures really mm-hmm. and after seeing wakanda forever i think it's kind of tough that this film came out after watching wakanda forever because that film is just dripping with authenticity and right. culture and then you go into this and it's like, oh, this isn't the right person to be telling the story. And Not you can feel it inherently. I think he's the right person to be directing this story because he is the visionary. This is why the film exists. <laughs> I disagree. But I think he is. He's the vision behind it all. But I don't think he's the right one to have written it. No, but I also think that hmm. the director is the director is kind of the master of the universe. <laughs> yeah, in a especially lot of when ways. the director is James Cameron. Like, I'm sure, yeah. you know other directors they don't necessarily have the same pull to influence the film as completely but someone like james cameron 100 percent would be doing that even if he hadn't written the screenplay watching this movie i thought why why do we need five avatars what is this for us or is this for him Mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of moments with movies this this past year even where i felt who is this for Mm-hmm. Like, do we need this? Audiences love going to see this. So, and I don't think anybody necessarily needs it. No, I agree. And that is a fair question. Who is this for? I do think that this film is trying to make a statement about conservation, about how humanity is just destroying the planet and we need to stop and we need to take consideration about that. I do think that it's making a statement about our relationship with the natural world mm-hmm. but and trying to build a bridge and exploring a statement yeah you know and it re- and really examining a statement talking of statements <laughs> james cameron said the movie very pointedly referred to the colonial period in the americas with all its conflict and bloodsheds between the military aggressors from europe and indigenous peoples europe equals earth the native americans are the navi it's not meant to be subtle he then goes on to specifically talk about the lakota shoe which are a nation within the united states uh, I felt like I was 130 years back in time watching what the Lakota Shoe must 
have might have been saying at a point when they were being pushed and they were being killed and they were being asked to displace and they were being given some form of compensation. This was a driving force for me in the writing of Avatar. I couldn't help but think that if they, the Lakota Shoe, had had a time window and they could see the future and they could see their kids committing suicide at the highest suicide rates in the nation because they were hopeless and they were a dead-end society, which is what is happening now, then they would have fought a lot harder. Mm. So this film is also him trying to be like, wow, like, indigenous people, like, you could really use my help letting you know, like, that you should have done things differently. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's so much more you could have done to resist European colonization, which is just wild. So how are the indigenous communities responding to this film? They've boycotted it pretty much universally. And mm. this isn't just indigenous communities from North America. This is also indigenous communities from across the world, specifically Maori communities from New Zealand have boycotted this because there's a lot of accusations that their specific cultural tropes, aesthetics, visuals in general have been taken to to depict the water nation. What's their name again? I'm so sorry. We can't remember any of the names of anything uh, so in difficult. this film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know this is exactly what i thought when i went into it i was like wow these look a lot like maori tattoos like wow like this looks mm. a lot like new zealand maybe hmm like james cameron's basically just gone oh i've already plundered everything i can from indigenous culture in north america let's just head to a different one and take that <laughs> yeah I, I get it it's, it's wild true. yes okay so why don't we get into performances <laughs> if we can right <sighs> yeah you know i think that the emotions and the performances get lost behind the avatar right there's some clips of zoe saldana that kind of come up on social media and it's her doing a quite powerful scene and she has all the CGI dots on her. Mm -hmm. She's in front of the green screen. And I remember seeing that and going, wow, that is really impressive acting mm -hmm. that I did not get impacted by while watching this movie. And uh, yeah. for me, I find that the power of the performances get really lost behind these avatars because, like I'm saying, they're inherently silly. And I have been moved by CGI before. Obviously, like, give me CGI King Kong. I cry my eyes out. I get moved by puppets, animation, all of it. But there is something specifically about Avatar that the, uh, the emotion is, is it's subdued behind the CGI. Or I, it's interesting because I didn't necessarily feel that way in the first film. Like, I actually felt, Neytiri specifically is a great example, I actually really did feel a lot of emotionality and a lot of passion in that character in the first film. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the way that the character looks, it's the same in this film, right? So I don't know necessarily that there's something inherent about the digitization and, like, visual of the Avatar that that removes the emotional connection. I think that the script didn't allow, gave none of them really anything in this film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only character that I really kind of felt something from was Loak, the middle son, and mm -hmm. Kiri, the Sigourney Weaver as a young child, trying to find her way. Those two characters I got behind. I thought that Loak was actually a really interesting character. I've And Payakon, the whale creature. That was actually the one that I was That was, was my behind. favorite character. 
was yeah. the whale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I'll say I agree. I think like the digital enhance- enhancements for me, it just makes it hard to know like what movements, what speech, what gestures, what facial expressions are artificial, and which ones are actually created by the actor in any way i I, mm-hmm. have, I have no way to know a lot of the time like i didn't i had no idea that was kate winslet like i had no idea that was kate winslet yeah mm. that was an interesting one because i was waiting for i knew kate winslet was in this and i was waiting for the kate winslet character and were it not for the mole i would not have known that that was kate winslet the little mole <laughs> by her mouth otherwise i wouldn't know i think that if they had made the new water nation indigenous actors i think if they had had indigenous writers involved i think if they'd actually done any kind of promotion campaign where they addressed and discussed what they did in the first film i think that there could have been great differences and i think the that's actually i think a big part of what is missing in terms of like the oomph you know there's the the lack of oomph in the plot that's what's missing to me it's like we're trying to tell this story that's meant to be an allegory about indigenous people and yet there are no indigenous people involved in the creation of these characters or of this world. Like that seems like a pretty huge miss. Completely 100%. Yeah. Okay, yeah. back to performances. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Edison's favorite actor, Sam Worthington. How did he hold up in this one? He's an entire non-event as per <laughs> usual. Yeah, like I gosh. have truly no idea how this person has, I don't get it. I can tell He's you. He's got the charisma of a lump. It's privilege. <laughs> That's what it is. He just happens oh. to be a handsome, white, cis, male, straight, american dude that's he's not american it. he's australian and there's also <laughs> eight Same million honestly. handsome gorgeous white cis straight men that are all aspiring actors that never get cast in a single role how does this dude get it it's not just privilege i i would say honestly i think his acting is kind of on par with like that first 10 minutes of any sean cody video and <laughs> with none of the follow-through so but it frankly, is actually fascinating like why this dude like Truly, it's baffling to I me. I don't and know. Maybe, maybe Cameron was like, "I got to pick someone who's never going to be that successful, so they'll always be available for these films." <laughs> yeah. Okay, that actually may be a really fair point. I'm that might make complete sense. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, he's yeah. everyone's going to be doing the Avatar movies till the day they die. Yeah. So okay. And Zoe Saldana, I'll say, I think is just wasted in terms of anything. Like she spends as much time hissing as she does talking. Which listen, if I was her, I'd be a bit pissed because, yeah. especially seeing the footage of her acting for this movie, mm-hmm. she clearly put in the work. She and the put in the work, the and yes. it's just it's so lost. And this is somebody who could be doing award-winning performances and this is you know not like you need to win an oscar but i don't think the oscars really acknowledge performances like this in heavily cgi'd movies and that could be a problem but i don't think this one is going to you know get her those types of parts and i think that she can do it right yeah okay so what about moving on to technical Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, well, here I actually have some positive notes. Yeah, um, <laughs> I should hope so. You know, this had a lot of elements of James Cameron's other films. There yeah. were mm-hmm. a lot of shots that looked like Titanic, the flooding yes. of the halls, and a lot of shots that looked like the abyss. There were throwback moments in this to, to his previous work. He does mm-hmm. have a very interesting fascination with water and using (laughs) water in his films. And 
those moments reminded me of the technical elements that I like about James Cameron films. There was Mm -hmm. the use of fire and destruction that reminded me of the Terminator movies Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I really liked. The Mm -hmm. problem came in when it then pans over to an avatar. And I'm immediately taken out because I think I just genuinely don't like the avatars. I don't like the CGI of it. I don't like watching the avatars. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I feel you. Okay. Really? I mean, okay, so here's here's my thing. And I I sort of looked at a few critics because I was like, I need to kind of understand what I'm feeling right now. So Nick Newman, writing for the film stage, wrote, I was zoning out because something looked cool. Something looked cool because I was zoning out. A white, ch- a white child with dreadlocks keeps showing up, and I've decided that this is also kind of cool. I've zoned out so much I begin to think about my own life, in which nothing has ever looked cool, only to reach some moment of clarity or delirium disguised as such. But at least I was thinking something. This yeah. movie has the greatest ratio of zone-out time to narrative comprehension I've ever experienced. I think that's actually quite spot on because I went to the bathroom about three times. I (laughs) brought in a sandwich. I had my popcorn and I even went to get a coffee at one point because I could not focus on this. I had such a level of not caring, which is just not me in the movies Mm -hmm. that I found to be disappointing for a movie that has been visually in the works for so long. Well, I could not disagree any stronger with either of you. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in my life. I agree with you Despite on that. Despite it being in in Screen X, I cannot <laughs> wait to see it again at the IMAX in 3D so that I can actually have that fully immersive experience. I thought it was colorful. I thought it was bright. I thought it was literally awe-inspiring, visually beautiful, particularly the effect of the water and that whole like hour-long chunk where the family is like learning the way of water. Mm-hmm. I was just sitting there with my mouth agape, my jaw on the floor, especially you mentioned Wakanda Forever. When you look at the water world developed in that one or in Aquaman, yeah, it's cool, but it's not even remotely close to the visual splendor and majesty that this film presented. I, I didn't feel a different honestly like i i do and i don't i don't want to say oh this looked like a video game i hate saying that because that's not the same process and it's it's not the same intention but i would much prefer a visual spectacle like dune or 1917 to something so cgi'd and maybe it is because we have had heavily CGI'd movies now bombard us for so long. Yeah, but not, long. not that look like this. I just yeah. didn't feel a difference. I just well, didn't. okay. And that's I, totally fair. So I'm, I, my feeling about it was that it's incredibly beautiful. So I agree with Edison on that front. And it's sort of, I think, very impressive to see a film that actually feels like it's made for 3D as opposed to just piggybacking on a trend, which a lot of the 3D mm-hmm. films that came out around the same time as Avatar, they really felt like they were just doing it because it was the thing everybody was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing that made me really feel such rage was that this film is incredibly beautiful, but it's like the beautiful wrapping around very toxic representations of masculinity and all the issues we discussed about the betrayals of indigenous people, all of that stuff is kind of just getting encoded into your brain 
because you're taking everything in because they're like, wow, this is so beautiful. And then you're kind of just bypassing mm. thinking about a lot of the critical aspects of this film. And I think that's a huge yeah, part of why this film is so popular because it's mm. hypnotic. Yeah. You honestly are so mesmerized by this film that you're able to then just ingest a lot of the values that are represented in this film that are inherently dangerous, I think, to indigenous people to anyone that doesn't fit into the traditional family unit to anyone that doesn't fit into the traditional gender binary and you just completely take that in because you're like wow there's like a bajillion space whales and they're beautiful and wow i just can't get over these trees and i'm zoning out over a fish (sighs) and that makes me so mad because it feels like all of this artistry and technical brilliance has been used to trick millions of people into ingesting these really awful values of course there's toxic masculinity in this film of course all of that is there i don't think that that's the values that this film is trying to put forth i think that the heart of this film is kiri and the tulkun it's about its pacifism and it's being connected to nature that's what the values that we're meant to take away from that the film is actually trying to push it's not saying yay this like you don't think the chest thumping thing is the winner Okay, what it, and what is the last word on Avatar The Way of Water? Mm-hmm. Sinclair? I'm glad that Edda said that you enjoyed this. That's totally fine. Is it? I don't need any more avatars in my life. I don't. I want to see James Cameron <laughs> do something else. I think, you know, maybe this will be fun for some. I just don't need any more of these movies, and that's what it is. Okay, Pearl. <laughs> Uh, I think that James Cameron should be made to give all of the profits from all of the Avatar films to indigenous communities (laughs) around the world to use as they see fit as a way to have any kind of restitution for his exploitation of their cultures for his own personal profit. It's a film that is inherently immoral. (laughs) It really glorifies all the things that I detest about Western civilization, (laughs) specifically about colonization, about white privilege, about the male ego. And it's all wrapped up in a beautiful, technically brilliant, visually spectacular bundle that makes me feel even more sick about it than I would have anyway. And go watch it in 3D. (laughs) And go check it out. It's made, it is made for 3D. So if you're going to watch it, watch it in 3D. <laughs> I think that this film is entertaining. I think it's breathtakingly beautiful. I thought it was, from a technical perspective, one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. The criticism is loud. There will be another Avatar film. There's going to be three more, four more films. It's happening. And so I do think that there's a really, really clear opportunity here for James Cameron to involve Indigenous voices in if they have to do reshoots and re-scripting the story and all the rest for future films. And we'll yet to see whether that happens or not. This episode, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. And that theme is, what planet are you from? This is Our Week in Entertainment. Pearl, as our special and most welcome and most beloved guest, host... You have the honor of filling in Helen's place, which is to always go first and always. So let's hear it. What did you pick? 
Uh, I picked a movie specifically to help people understand why my nickname for Ed- that Edison has given me is Pearl, which is Steven Universe. Oh, okay, movie. great, because I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, I've been calling you Pearl instead of Risha this whole time, haven't I? I'm yeah, so you sorry. have, and that's okay. So Pearl is a character from Steven Universe, the movie. Uh, this film is a reverse of Avatar, so it focuses on the invasion of Earth by gems, which are a non-organic uh, civilization of immortal beings who read to humans as women or femme. This film is set two years after the end of the critically acclaimed show Steven Universe from Cartoon Network, mm. created by Rebecca Sugar, who was the first woman and first non binary person to have a show on Cartoon Network. And it follows the adventures of Steven, who is a half human, half gem boy, and the only hybrid in existence. He through the series, learns about gems, their colonization of Earth, and their very different approaches to socialization, romance, labor, and happiness. It's a beautiful animation. It's colorful. It's resplendent. There's, you know, obviously it's not Avatar level. It's not 3D. It's more of a traditional cartoon, but there's a lot of beauty there that I was sort of like, wow, I really want to bring this film in. But more importantly for me, this film actually explores or uses aliens to explore the different ways of being, of relating to each other, of forming a society that we could have. And that's something which you don't really see ever happen in Avatar. So it's sort of incredible in that sense. Mm. There's a lot of um, support for this film from queer communities because it really helps to show different types of family unit, not just man woman kids uh really goes into different ways of doing it uh it's also a musical um it's very very much considered by many people to be a kids film but it actually has a huge significance and impact with adult audiences as well uh released in 2019 Mm -hmm. it follows the arrival of spinel another gem as she uses her powers to wipe the personalities of the main characters and poison the earth unto annihilation and also you know like work through a whole lot of trauma uh (laughs) it's it's a really fun film if you want to see a a film that's actually going to nourish your family and show them different ways of being and make them feel better about themselves and learn how to accept others this is a much better film to go watch Hmm. and that's my owie (laughs) Okay, no, that's wonderful. But but why Pearl? Mm-hmm. Oh, and Pearl is one of the characters. So all of the gems are called like Pearl or Lapis or Amethyst or Garnet. And so I'm named after Pearl, who's a rather persnickety, um, <laughs> almost British, <laughs> ballet dancing, sword bearing, loyal, driven, caring, paranoid creature. So it's very huh. me. <laughs> Right. I didn't even realize there was a Steven Universe m- movie, but we watched the series mm-hmm. together at our friend Andy's house with his wife, Jen, and their kids. Mm. And uh, it is am- amazing. But yeah, you were such a pearl. <laughs> that, that's where the nickname <laughs> came from. And it is the most beautiful sh- series. Wonderful. Wow. It's incredible. Sinclair, what did you have for yours? <laughs> sure. So I watched a movie called Earwig. It's oh. from 2022. And it's okay. directed by a director who I have spoken about uh, one of her movies before on the podcast. It's directed by Lucille Hazihavilovich. She is a director that did a movie called Evolution that I've talked about before on the podcast. It was a very weird experience about this like weird island where these little boys were experimented on and there is these weird sea creatures and all this like nightmarish stuff 
and it made for a very lively conversation and I was very curious about her new movie which is just as weird she's also the wife of Gaspar Noe so mm-hmm. those two mm. I assume made quite the pair peak weird peak weird <laughs> but this <laughs> is a story about a young girl named Mia who is under the care of this older man who is like a caretaker and the strange thing about Mia is that she has ice for teeth. She has ice dentures that need to be put in and removed. <laughs> but what about but when, they, when, like her mouth? Don't, does, they, don't melt? they melt? Yes, they melt, but... She gets one bite of her meat pie and then it's over? They, it needs to be changed, I think, a couple times a day by this caretaker. And <laughs> Why the ice? Most random, the ice? That is the most random attribute for a film character yes, I have ever it heard. Is. <laughs> the ice actually melts into this contraption, then is frozen into the ice dentures, and then she gets them again in her mouth. This goes on a couple times a day, I'm pretty sure. This is in post-war Europe, but there is something about the world that this is happening in that just feels very off-kilter. It's like it's existing on Earth, but there Mm. is something that we can't imagine this to be true. Like you feel like you're in a dark fairy tale or on some sort of other planet. There's just elements of this that you feel like you're grounded on Earth, but then you see this little girl and you're wondering okay but why like why does she have ice for teeth who is this man it almost has a let the right one in element to it Mm. with like a little girl where you don't exactly know and this caretaker that is like watching over her you don't get answers Mm. to this this movie goes along she eventually gets glass for for teeth you follow this man who answers makes, these weird good. phone calls it's very <laughs> very hypnotic um, very vague and this is the thing with her movies it's like it's not boring but you get sucked in and you just never get answers why mm. does this girl have ice teeth I don't know <laughs> I, I don't know and I have to live with that now I'll never so do we. Thank know. You. And you, you will never know. But it's kind of like worth it in the end because it's an experience like no other watching her films. And she always has similar themes of children being exploited or experimented on by adults. And, you know, this, this exploitation of children, it's always just done in a very dark fairy tale way. Her films are like not like anything I've ever seen. So Earwig, interesting movie. You won't get the answers that you want. But if you like a vague, dark fairy tale, check this director out. She is just truly unique. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, invite her to my party. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Edison, what did you pick? So my film for What Planet Are You From theme is from 1968. It is directed mm. by Roger Vadim, and it is Barbarella. Oh, wild. Oh, yeah. Nice. I had never, ever seen this. Wild. Yeah, this film is completely insane. <laughs> I really <laughs> didn't know. I had no idea what to expect. 
I knew that it was going to be campy and ridiculous, but it is. So basically, it stars Jane Fonda as Barbarella, the titular character. She is a futuristic astronaut who lives in this ship, <laughs> I guess, that's covered Her. in shag rug. Her. And yeah, <laughs> and she's going through space on various missions. She essentially is traveling to this distant planet of Tau Chetty. Now, she is from Earth, though, mm. and she's trying to stop this evil scientist, Duran Durand, from unleashing a weapon of mass destruction. Now, the world, the whole universe had been pacified for thousands of years up until that point. And it's really interesting to watch this film because it's, you know that it's going to be campy and ridiculous. And you assume that it's going to be exploitative and misogynistic and awful. Kind of is. It it kind (laughs) of is, but... Jane Fonda, this really shaped her career. She moved on to do a lot of roles to get away from the the type of uh, female character that Barbarella was. Yes, but ultimately this is a film about sexual liberation Mm -hmm. and exploration. And she is this woman who has the strength and determination to go through everything and her willingness to just take on whatever comes at her way and to overcome it. Barbarella is this strong, independent woman who speaks her mind and takes charge of her own destiny, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's portraying the future of this world where nobody has sex anymore. It's everything is just done through this, like, you touch hands. They have mental sex. They have mental sex. So it's a horror (laughs) Rapport is... (laughs) But it's, yes, essentially. It's really campy and ridiculous. Uh, But it is actually one of the highlights of the film is the production design. Like, it's pretty cool looking. Oh, yeah. Especially Mm. for its time. None of of the, like, visuals hold up necessarily today. But it is, like, really, really cool to look at that way. So, yeah, I thought it was, like, a fun, entertaining film. It's really interesting, too, when you look at all the sci-fi movies from 1968 and how vastly different... They are totally like uh, 1968. Yeah. That's 2001: A Space Odyssey. That you can't even believe was made at that time. It looks so good. And then you yeah. have this yeah. campy, campy <laughs> Barbarella. That it's just amazing that it was the same year. Yeah. Oh yeah. Her outfits it's, are is. to die for, though. Actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's part of sci-fi, right? Yeah. yeah. And she looks so much like Elizabeth Banks. She oh, really? is so beautiful. She is so beautiful in Barbarella and and such a sex symbol. But you can see how the Jane Fonda that we grew to know isn't necessarily there in this character. You see the change in the actress after this. Movie. Oh, totally. That's true. And I, and you can absolutely appreciate why why she would want to move away from that yeah. character. It would be so easy for her to be cast in the similar type of thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, all right. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. Thank you, Risha, for being our special guest. Next week, be sure to tune in for Helen's Return and our discussion of my most anticipated film of the year, the Whitney Houston biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Oh, let it be good. I'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to listen if to you would like to get in, Hi, Helen. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTMpodcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Edison. I'm Miss Sinclair. And you're Risha, and thank you for being here. And I'm Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. You're welcome. Bye. <laughs>